Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, February 23rd, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the eternal enemy of the Jews. And thank you for listening. It has been nearly six and a half years since Christrike, our second book, was made available in November of 2011. So I've really been slacking in this area. Now we have been able to publish our third book, A Commentary on the Epistle of Paul to the Romans. It is 330 pages in soft cover, and it is being sold presently, as of two days ago, at Christagenia.com for $18 plus shipping. It contains a slightly edited edition of the text of our 21 podcast commentaries on Romans, which were presented here in 2013, along with a table of contents and a short preface. On another note, we had to raise the prices of our first two books a dollar or two. I I regret having to do that. This is because each batch of books that we buy must not only pay for itself, but must also finance the next batch that we buy once they are sold. We were not quite doing that with the lower prices, mostly because we were not covering transaction and banking fees. However, we do not expect to have to raise their prices again, at least so long as the printing fees do not increase. But even with that, we cannot profit from any of our books until we sell 300 copies. And that's because we put money out for the first 200 copies and have to sell them to pay for that to compensate us for what we put out and to buy the next 200 copies. So that that's ideally the way it'll work and, and we won't see a dime until we sell 300 copies because that second batch of books, the first 100 copies would have to finance the third batch of books. So that's the way it has to work. And and our book sales are going to have to support themselves. I probably have material for at least another 30 books. That's a guess. And perhaps even more than that. And, And that doesn't even include what I may write in the future. I pray that I keep on writing for many years. But for now, over the next few months, we hope to get out commentaries on Malachi, Zechariah, and Hebrews into print. There are specific reasons for my choosing those to be next. And after that, the commentary on the book of Acts, which will probably be a two-book set, because it will be close to 570 or 580 pages, if I'm not mistaken. We usually do not report on news at Christagenia. And we generally ignore all of these school shootings and these other mass shootings. Unless we can document for ourselves certain details... So I think the only mass shooting that we wrote about or discussed here was the alleged Orlando Homocaust, which I believe was around the middle of last year. 
The recent Florida shooting seems to be just as real as that one. Another fake news psyop orchestrated in a community that is heavily Jewish. Even the sheriff is a Jew. But neither is it our purpose to discuss that. But there is another recent event <coughs> which does have our attention. This is it is killing many more than 17 kids, allegedly. Allegedly, I'm not accepting that as fact. And this shows just how fast we as a nation are descending into the fires of hell. That event is a recent court decision in Hamilton County, Ohio, where a 17-year-old girl has been taken from her parents because her parents were denying her desire to transition herself into somehow being a boy. This is according to, this was reported nationally, Fox News, CNN, but this is according to WCPO in Cincinnati, or Sin Sin Addy, a name which should be spelled using the letter S and not the letter C where we read in a recent article that a 17-year-old, and get this, right, a 17-year-old Hamilton County boy, actually a girl, who has spent more than a year fighting to be recognized by his family and the world as a boy, finally has just that. And, and this reporter is that this news outlet WCPO is obviously biased towards sodomites. A ruling handed down Friday by juvenile court judge Sylvia Sieve Hendon awards custody to the boy's grandparents with whom he currently lives and who have supported his gender transition. Now, notice that the article from WCPO has already accepted that this child is a boy, even while it is still a biological female, and before it has actually undergone whatever medical procedure may make it a male, like maybe magically attaching the appropriate biological appendages. The article also makes the supposition that because some local judge decided that the girl can be a boy, that the entire world would support and follow the judge's decision. Continuing, it says, on the other hand, were his parents, who lawyers say insisted he receive Christian therapy, rather than be allowed to pursue hormone replacement therapy or sex reassignment. The only Christian therapy we can imagine that may help this child is a good stoning. The wording of the article also implies that Christian therapy is not morally superior to the outright acceptance of this perversion. Of course, we would be persuaded that some form of Christian therapy is necessary for this girl. 
However, the judge, a woman in her 70s, who was educated locally at the Jesuit Xavier University in Cincinnati and the Salmon P. Chase College of Law a few miles away in Highland Heights, Kentucky, the judge had a different idea. The article goes on and says that the judge ruled that the (coughs) boy's grandparents shall have the right to determine what medical care will be pursued at Cincinnati's Children's Hospital with the caveat that a psychologist unaffiliated with the hospital shall first evaluate the teen to ensure consistency between the child's gender presentation and feelings of nonconformity. I think what we need to do is ensure that we maintain consistency between the child's gender presentation and what's in its damned pants. His parents have been granted visitation rights, and Hendon encourages them to work toward reintegration of the child into, get this, the extended family. The judge's decision is clearly politicized, predicated on the legitimacy of corrupted children and rejecting any notion of possible correction by parents who no longer have any authority in their own homes. The news outlet again continues to display its own pro-tranny bias by repeatedly referring to the girl with masculine pronouns. But now it shows even further bias where it continues and it says, Supporters of the trans community say acceptance is important. And then he's quoting some pervert who says, As they experience love and support in coordination with that, they become their best selves, said Dan Stoltz of Lighthouse Youth and Family Services. And they're able to contribute their strengths to the community. I can't imagine what those strengths may be. The news report goes on to say that the Living with Change Foundation expressed its support for the judge's ruling. They didn't quote one Christian organization, even Judeo-Christian organization, that had an alternate opinion. According to their own literature, this Lighthouse Youth and Family Services was primarily founded in 1969 by a group of citizens from the Baptist Women's Fellowship in Cincinnati. Now they openly advocate for sodomites under the cover of a slogan which proclaims that discrimination is against the law. It seems that all of these denominational organizations have eagerly become cucks for Satan. The so-called Living with Change Foundation is a local nonprofit founded by a perverted Cincinnati couple named Chris and Jessica. It looks like Chicanelli or Cicinelli, who have made a living peddling sex and perversion. Their own daughter having been corrupted, she's a dyke. They are now intent on corrupting a generation of Cincinnati youth, using puberty as an excuse to corrupt young children permanently before they can even reach the age of puberty, 
and profiting from the corruption itself while they pose as philanthropists. They pose as philanthropists. They're really professional perverts making that this tranny movement into their organized crime. And now it gets worse. Hendon, the judge, Hendon concluded her ruling with commentary on the legal system, encouraging lawmakers to set up a framework to evaluate minors' rights to pursue gender therapy. And here we have several things going on. First, the news outlet voiced support only from pro-tranny proponents of sodomy. Then we see the judge operating on the false premise that somehow minor children have a right to become sodomites and trannies, choosing at such a young age to permanently mutilate their bodies, and that protesting parents are somehow violating that right. Then, ostensibly, the parents are forced to finance the destruction of their own children. This is organized crime. The media is in bed with such corrupted judges to give the proponents of sodomy the appearance of having a moral high ground when these corrupted children are actually among the victims of a racket being operated by the lowest scum of the earth. So it gets worse where it summarizes more of the judge's opinion. It says, there is certainly a reasonable expectation that circumstances similar to the one at bar, meaning this case, are likely to repeat themselves. The legislature, yeah, as long as you have perverts in your community named Chickenelli, th- this case is going to repeat itself a lot. The legislature, the judge says, should consider a set of standards by which the court is able to judge and act upon that minor's request based upon the child's maturity, Hendon wrote. That type of legislation would give a voice and a pathway to kids in similar situations without embroiling their families in relationship-damning litigations, as if your daughter wanting to wear a penis isn't relationship-damaging enough. And they were Hendon's last conclusion. The fact that any such litigation is even possible is proof enough that America is doomed. Everyone who actually cares about God and nation and comes to that realization that America is doomed will be better off the sooner they admit it. It is inevitable America is doomed and is scheduled to be damned and destroyed. The word of Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 5 describes this situation perfectly. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. These words have described our media and politicians for a hundred years or longer, and still the situation gets worse. Later on, Isaiah announces the coming of Christ our King, and assures us in chapter 32, in part, that the vile person shall no more be called liberal, nor the churl, the scum, 
said to be bountiful. We pray that the impending judgment of Yahweh comes quickly. With that, we shall present Ecclesiastes Part 6, and this presentation is subtitled, Wisdom and the Power of Authority. We concluded our last presentation of Solomon's Ecclesiastes with the end of Chapter 7. We had for our theme, Wisdom and the Power of Sin. Regardless of all of his great wisdom, his knowledge, and the thousands of psalms and proverbs which he had written containing hundreds of great moral lessons and proclamations, Solomon himself had nevertheless succumbed to a life of sin in both his sexual licentiousness and his overabundant lifestyle. So our conclusion was that without Yahweh God, Man cannot keep himself from sin, not even a man as wise as Solomon. It cannot be said that Solomon did not have faith. It cannot be said that Solomon was unaware of the consequences of what he was doing. And in fact, Solomon himself admitted that he gave himself over to such sin purposefully, so that he may investigate whether it had any value. Such investigation is, of course, contrary to Christian values. And we do consider the values of the Old Testament kingdoms of Israel and Judah as they are presented in law to be Christian values, there is no doubt. And therefore we must interpret Solomon's admission as an excuse by which he sought to justify himself even though the result of his justification, which is left to us, which is left to posterity in this book, Ecclesiastes, does indeed benefit us all. Ecclesiastes teaches us that there is no lasting benefit in worldly riches, and there is no merit in mirth or in licentiousness. Ecclesiastes teaches us that all is vanity, and that all shall always be vanity, so long as we do not consider Yahweh our God. It is only with God that man has a purpose, and without God there is nothing but vanity. If we cannot learn these lessons from Solomon, who serves himself up as the preeminent example of these questions, then we cannot learn them at all, and we are doomed to repeat the mistakes of the preacher and to exacerbate our own vanity. Only Yahweh can keep us from sin regardless of our apparent wisdom or our own apparent goodness we simply cannot keep ourselves from sin so when the apostles had asked Yahshua Christ how they should pray he answered and said as we read in Luke chapter 11 when ye pray say our father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come Thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. 
Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive every one that is indebted to us, or that has sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we sin, we ourselves should take all of the blame. However, Yahweh, being God, knows when we shall sin, and we should pray that he keeps or delivers us from it. Without him, we are certainly destined to sin. Solomon could not avoid it, and we are certainly no wiser or better. With this, we shall commence with Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Who is as the wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. Brenton Septuagint reads the passage to say, so that we understand it a little better, Who knows the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a saying? A man's wisdom will lighten his countenance, but a man of shameless countenance will be hated. Quite different, the ending of that. The preacher is warning that wisdom would remove boldness from a man's countenance, that wisdom would cause a man to set aside a bold disposition. Writing in Proverbs chapter 16, Solomon said from verse 12, It is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness, even though Solomon went on to commit wickedness. It is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness. For the throne is established by righteousness. This once again shows that he should have known better than to commit his own sin. Then, relevant to the opening verses of this chapter of Ecclesiastes, in the next verse of Proverbs chapter 16, he continued by saying, Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and they love him that speaketh right. The wrath of a king is as messengers of death, but a wise man will pacify it, pacify the king's wrath. A wise man, a man with wisdom, will seek to pacify the wrath of the king. In the light of the king's countenance is life, and his favor is as a cloud of the latter rain. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold, and to get understanding rather than to be chosen than silver and to get understanding rather to be chosen than silver. Now Solomon's warning in Proverbs concerning the power of a king is predicated on the notion that the king is a righteous one. As we saw in verse 12 where he wrote for the throne is established by righteousness. However, this exhortation from Proverbs chapter 16 has a parallel in the warning of Paul of Tarsus in Romans chapter 13, where the apostle wrote, as it is in the Christogenian New Testament, because there are some mistranslations in the King James Version that I would rather not deal with in this presentation, every soul must be subject to more powerful authorities, since there is no authority except from Yahweh then those who are, by Yahweh are they appointed. 
Consequently, one opposing the authority has opposed the ordinance of Yahweh. And they who are in opposition will themselves receive judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good work, but to evil. Now do you desire not to be fearful of the authority? Practice good, and you will have approval from it. A servant of Yahweh is to you for good. But if you practice evil, the servant of Yahweh being the authority which Yahweh puts in charge, either for our benefit or our punishment, we must keep that in mind. But if you practice evil, be fearful, for not without purpose will he bear the sword. Indeed, a servant of Yahweh is an avenger of wrath, to, with wrath to he who has practiced evil. On which account to be subordinate is a necessity, not only because of indignation, but also because of conscience. For this reason also you pay tribute. They, meaning those authorities, are ministers of Yahweh, obstinately persisting in the same thing. So now we shall see another similar exhortation, where the preacher continues here in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and he says in verse 2, I counsel, I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment, and that in regard of the oath of God. And we're going to qualify that shortly. Be not hasty to go out of his sight. Stand not in an evil thing. For he does whatsoever pleases him, meaning the king does whatsoever pleases him. So be not hasty to go out of his sight, and stand not in an evil thing. This is the same advice Paul was giving in Romans chapter 13. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say, who may say unto him, What doest thou, or what are you doing? Whoso keepeth the commandment, the commandment of the king, shall feel no evil, and a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Because to every purpose there is time and judgment. Therefore the misery of man is great upon him. The exhortation is to keep the king's commandment in regard to the oath of God. And that has nothing to do with the Israelites' obedience to the covenant or to God. But only with the individual obedience to the king. In order to understand it, this is what Solomon meant where he referred to the oath of God here in verse 2. We must compare language employed in the descriptions of the acts of Solomon's life in 1 Kings chapter 2. And there in verse 37, the young King Solomon warns a man named Shimei, And he says, For it shall be that on a day that thou goest out and passest over the brook Kidron, Thou shalt know for certain that thou shalt surely die. Thy blood shall be upon thine own head. And Shammai said unto the king, Solomon, The saying is good. As my lord the king has said, so will thy servant do. And Shammai dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Solomon warned Shammai and had him swear by Yahweh that he would not leave Jerusalem. Solomon confined Shammai to Jerusalem as a punishment. And we'll get to that a little later. Then after Shammai had eventually disobeyed Solomon, we read a little further on in Second Kings chapter 2, in verse 32, I'm sorry, in verse 42, 
And the king sent and called for Shammai and said unto him, Did I not make thee to swear by the Lord? And protest unto thee, saying, Know for a certain that on the day that thou goest out and walkest abroad anywhere, that thou shalt surely die. And thou saidest unto me, The word that I have heard is good. Why then hast thou not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I have charged thee with? So the oath of God, or the oath of the Lord, is an oath made before Yahweh, invoking his name, and not necessarily with Yahweh. So here in verse 2 where the preacher says, I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment, and that in regard of the oath of God. He refers to any oath made with the king by any individual. Then he warns, Be not hasty to go out of his sight. Stand not in an evil thing. For he does whatsoever pleases him. Because the king has the authority to do whatever pleases him. So for that alone, he is warning that a man must be humble and obedient to his king. For that he adds that there is no one who may question the king's motives. Where he says in verse 4, Where the word of the king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, What doest thou? Then he advises that it is better to be obedient because, in verse 5, Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Because to every purpose there is time and judgment, therefore the misery of man is great upon him. Looking at the early actions of Solomon, after he came to the throne of David his father. We see a history which precisely fits these exhortations. For this, and and this is relevant for the next several verses of this chapter as well, so we'll have to bear these things in mind as we present the next several verses of Ecclesiastes. For this we will read a longer portion of 1 Kings chapter 2, including the verses concerning Shammai, which we have just cited, there at the end of this chapter, we're reading from verse 12, Then sat Solomon upon the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was established greatly. And Adonijah, or Adoniah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. This is one of Solomon's half-brothers. And she said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. Now, there's reasons for the trepidation here, because in the ancient world, and, and this is very clear in Persian history, in recorded Persian history, in recorded Roman history, when a son took a father's throne, there were always other family members or other sons that had been had felt slighted that felt they deserved a throne and and there would be family interfamily rivalry and men who succeeded to their father's thrones often basically had to wipe out their own brothers in order to remain on that throne the um the roman emperors in the first century were constantly eliminating their own relatives who who were potential competitors for the title of Caesar. 
and that happened many times. And Adoniah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. He said, Moreover, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And she said, Say on. And he said, Thou knowest that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel set their faces on me, that I should, that I should reign. Howbeit the kingdom is turned about, and is become my brother's. For it was from, it was his from Yahweh. And now I ask one petition of thee, deny me not. And she said unto him, Say on. And he said, Speak, I pray thee, unto Solomon the king, for he will not say thee no. He will not refuse thee. Actually, he did, but Adoniah was mistaken. For he will not say thee nay, that he give me Abishag, the Shunammite, to wife. And Bathsheba said, Well, I will speak for thee unto the king. Bathsheba therefore went unto king Solomon to speak unto him for Adoniah. And the king rose to, rose up to meet her and bowed himself unto her, this is his mother, and sat down on his throne and caused a seat to be set for the king's mother. And she sat on his right hand. Then she said, I desire one small petition of thee, I pray thee. Say me not nay. In other words, don't tell me no. Please don't tell me no. And the king said unto her, Ask on, my mother, for I will not say thee nay. And she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah thy brother to wife. And King Solomon answered and said unto his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? For him, ask for him the kingdom also, for he is mine elder brother, even for him, and for Abiathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. Then King Solomon swore by Yahweh, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if Adoniah has not, if Adoniah has not spoken this word against his own life. In other words, Solomon wants Adonijah slain for asking for this woman for a wife. There must have been some some rivalry between them for this woman. Now therefore, this is verse 24 of 2 Kings. I'm sorry, 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. Now therefore, as Yahweh lives, which has established me, and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house, as he promised, Adoniah shall be put to death this day. And King Solomon sent by the hand of Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, 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 probably not pronounceable in English the way it was pronounced in Hebrew. Jehoiada. And he fell upon him that he died. So Solomon had his brother slain. And unto Abiathar the priest said the king, Get thee to Anatoth, and unto thy fields, unto thine own fields. For thou art worthy of death, but I will not at this time put thee to death, 
because thou bearest the ark of Yahweh God before David my father and because thou hast been afflicted in all wherein my father was afflicted so Solomon thrust out Abiathar from being the priest unto Yahweh that he might fulfill the word of Yahweh which he spoke concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh several generations before then tidings came to Joab for Joab had turned after Adoniah though he turned not after Absalom David's son Absalom had rebelled against him but Joab stayed true to David here evidently Joab sided himself with Adoniah against Solomon and Joab fled under the tabernacle of Yahweh and caught hold on the horns of the altar now at this point the temple is not quite built and it was told King Solomon that Joab was fled under the tabernacle of Yahweh and behold he is by the altar then Solomon sent Beniah the son of Jehoiada saying go fall upon him and Beniah came to the tabernacle of Yahweh and said unto him thus saith the king come forth and he said no but I will die here and Beniah brought the king word again saying thus said Joab and thus he answered me and the king said unto him do as he has said and fall upon him and bury him that thou mayest take away the innocent blood which Joab shed from me and from the house of my father and Yahweh shall return his blood upon his own head who fell upon two men more righteous and better than he and slew them with the sword my father David not knowing thereof to wit Abner the son of Ner captain of the host of Israel and Amasa the son of Jether captain of the host of Judah their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his seed forever but upon but upon David and upon his seed and upon his house and upon his throne shall there be peace forever from Yahweh so Beniah the son of Jehoiada went up and fell upon him and slew him and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness and the king put Beniah the son of Jehoiada in his room over the host in other words Beniah killed Joab and received his office as a reward for obeying Solomon and Zadok the priest did the king put in the room or in the office of Abiathar and the king sent and called for Shammai and said unto him build thee a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and go not forth from there any longer for it shall be that on the day that thou goest out and passest over the brook Kidron thou shalt know for certain that thou shalt surely die thy blood shall be upon thine own head and Shammai said unto the king the saying is good as my lord the king has said so will thy servant do now evidently Solomon held him to an oath so we don't really see the oath described here but it must have happened and Shammai dwelt in Jerusalem many days 
And it came to pass at the end of three years that two of the servants of Shemai ran away unto Achish, the son of Makkah, king of Gath. And they told Shemai, saying, Behold, thy servants be in Gath. And Shemai arose and saddled his ass and went to Gath, which breaks the oath, to Achish to seek his servants. And Shemai went and brought his servants from Gath. And it was told Solomon that Shemai had gone from Jerusalem to Gath, and was come again. And the king sent and called for Shemai, and said unto him, Did I not make thee to swear by Yahweh, and protested unto thee, saying, Know for certain, that on the day that thou goest out and walkest abroad anywhere, that thou shalt surely die, and thou saidest unto me the word that I have heard is good. Why then hast thou not kept the oath of the Lord? and the commandment that I have charged thee with. The king said moreover to Shammai, Thou knowest all the wickedness which thine heart is privy to, that thou did to my father David. Therefore Yahweh shall return thy wickedness upon thine own head, and King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before Yahweh forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, which went out and fell upon him that he died. And the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is asserting that the man of wisdom would obey the king. Because if he did not obey the king, the king has power to do with him whatsoever he pleases. For that, Paul of Tarsus said in Romans chapter 13, that every soul must be subject to more powerful authorities. Since there is no authority except from Yahweh, then those who are, meaning than those who are authorities, by Yahweh are they appointed. For this we also read in the law, in Exodus chapter 22, where we shall endeavor to translate the passage from the King James Version a little more accurately. Thou shalt not revile the judges, nor curse the ruler of thy people. The lesson here in Ecclesiastes is that the king has absolute authority to do as he wishes. So the wise man is obedient to the power of such authority. However, Solomon expected the throne to be established in righteousness and not in wickedness. The lesson in Romans chapter 13 is that government is a punishment from God and that people ultimately are rewarded with the government that they deserve. This is proven where the kingdom of Judah was to be punished for its sin and told that if they did not serve the king of Babylon, they would die. So it says in Jeremiah chapter 27, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah the king of Judah, came this word unto Jeremiah from Yahweh, saying, Thus saith Yahweh to me, Make thee bonds and yokes, and put them upon thy neck, and send them to the king of Edom, and to the king of Moab, and to the king of the Ammonites, and to the king of Tyre, and to the king of Sidon, by the hand of the messengers which come to Jerusalem, unto Zedekiah king of Judah. And command them to say unto their masters, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus shall ye say unto your masters, I have made the earth, the man and the beasts that are upon the ground. By my great power and by my outstretched arm 
and have given it unto whom it seemed meet to me. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beast of the field have I given him also to serve him. This is the context under which we must understand Romans chapter 13. Nebuchadnezzar for Israel was a punishment from God. And all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's sons until the very time of his land come. And then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. And it shall come to pass that the nation and kingdom which will not serve the same Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and that will not put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation will I punish, saith Yahweh, with the sword, and with the famine, and with the pestilence, until I have consumed them by his hand. Therefore hearken not ye unto your prophets, nor to your diviners, nor to your dreamers, nor your enchanters, nor your sorcerers, which speak unto you, saying, Ye shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy for they prophesy a lie unto you, to remove you far from your land, and that I should drive you out and you should perish. But the nations that bring their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, those will I let remain still in their own land, saith Yahweh. And they shall till it and dwell therein. I spoke also to Zedekiah king of Judah according to all these words, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon, and serve him and his people, and live. Of course, they rebelled against the king of Babylon, and they were brought off into captivity. The preacher, from his own experience, is teaching what we also see in Jeremiah chapter 27 and in Romans chapter 13. But Paul of Tarsus was teaching from the words of the later prophets and the history of Israel. So in Romans chapter 13, Paul ultimately encouraged his readers to keep the commandments and to depart from sin where he urges, for instance, in verse 14, after exhorting his readers to keep the commandments and to depart from sin, he urges that, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. So even the prophet Daniel served the king of Babylon, so long as his service to the king did not cause him to transgress in his service to God. When the king of Babylon tried to command Daniel to transgress against his God, that is when Daniel refused him and suffered his punishments instead, in the lion's den and in the fiery furnace. Daniel, being righteous, Yahweh saved him from both. And that is our example to this very day, where the words of the preacher remain relevant. Christians cannot allow themselves to be compelled to evil by kings or judges, even if it costs them their own parents or their own children, as in the case of perversion and corruption we just illustrated from Cincinnati, Ohio. As the Apostle said, 
we ought to obey God rather than man. In ancient Mesopotamian literature, heaven represented the seats of government and the earth represented the general mass of the people. With that understanding, we should read among the consequences for sin given by Yahweh in the warnings of Deuteronomy chapter 28. And thy heaven that is over thy head shall be brass. In other words, your government is going to be very burdensome and hard to deal with. And the earth that is under thee shall be iron. In other words, the general mass of the people are also going to be burdensome and hard to deal with. This is the trial we all face for the sins of our people. So now, because those who would obey Yahweh their God must face the lion's den and the fiery furnace, we do not know whether they will survive them. So in relation to the judgment of man, the preacher asks, For he knoweth not that which shall be, For who can tell him when it shall be? There is no man that has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. Neither has he power in the day of death. And there is no discharge in war. The King James Version erroneously adds the word that to the text. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. The King James Version unnecessarily and incorrectly added the word that to the text, and we omitted it. Brenton Septuagint reads this passage to say, For there is no one that knows what is going to be. For who shall tell him how it shall be? There is no man that has power over the spirit to retain the spirit, and there is no power in the day of death. Man has no power to prevent his own death. And there is no discharge in the day of the battle. Neither shall ungodliness save her votary. (coughs) As Solomon personified wisdom in the Proverbs, here the preacher personifies ungodliness as a woman who cannot save those who worship her, at least according to Brenton's reading of the Septuagint. As we had cited discussing Ecclesiastes chapter 6, there the preacher had asked, For who knoweth what is good for man in this life, all the days of his vain life, which he spends as a shadow? For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? And of course, only Yahweh God knows how each of us should be tried in this world. Therefore we read from Revelation chapter 13 verse 10, If one is for captivity, into captivity he goes. If one is to be slain by the sword, he is to be slain by the sword. Thus is the patience and the faith of the saints. The point here is that men must submit to those who rule over them, as they cannot save their own lives from their oppressors. So here the preacher is also elaborating on a theme which he introduced in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 where he wrote, So I returned, and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such, as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the left, and on the side of their oppressors, there was power, but they had no comforter. 
In the end, the oppressor was no better off than the oppressed, and both are at the mercy of the judgment of God. So, as we see in the example of Daniel and of the apostles, we must submit to our governments only until they cause us or they attempt to cause us to transgress against our God. Therefore now Solomon adds to that the confession that all this have I seen and I applied my heart unto every work that is done under the sun. There is a time wherein one man rules over another to his hurt. In chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon spoke of the plight of the oppressor as well as of the oppressed, the ruler as well as those who are ruled over, and of the foolish king and his vanity compared to the wise child who would become king. And he asserted that the people would not rejoice in either. Then in chapter 5, writing in reference to the oppression of the poor, he spoke of riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. Now building on the same theme, he mentions a time wherein one man rules over another to his own hurt. Earlier in Ecclesiastes, Solomon acknowledged even his own vanity that departing this world as everyone else, he also would face the judgment of Yahweh. Thus is wisdom and the power of authority, and we can notice an overarching theme in the exhortations of the preacher, that rulers should exercise their rule in righteousness for fear of Yahweh, while those who are ruled over should be obedient to a righteous ruler. Now we must notice that immediately after warning that a man can rule over others to his own hurt, the preacher continues in reference to the wicked, which must be a continuation of that same warning. He's not changing the subject. And so I saw the wicked buried, who had come and gone from the place of the holy, and they were forgotten in the city where they had done so. This is also vanity. The preacher first mentioned the wicked in a reference to the judgment of God in chapter 3, and then began comparing the righteous and the wicked in chapter 7, where he said, reading from the Septuagint, I have seen all things in the days of my vanity. There is a just man perishing in his justice, and there is an ungodly man remaining in his wickedness. The old and foolish king of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 must have been one such wicked ruler, ruling over men to his own hurt. As the preacher said that he would no more be admonished, meaning that he would not accept correction. So he said that he that is born in his kingdom becomes poor. In Proverbs chapter 20, the same writer makes an exhortation which summarizes what is being related here in Ecclesiastes. Man's goings are of Yahweh. How can a man then understand his own way? 
The question parallels what we read here in verses 7 and 8. Then continuing, he says, A wise king scatters the wicked and brings the wheel over them. The spirit of man is the candle of Yahweh, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Mercy and truth preserve the king, and his throne is upholden by mercy. In verse 26, the King James translators missed an allegory, which we shall read from the New American Standard Bible. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the threshing wheel over them. This is what Solomon had done, at least in large degree, as it is described in 1 Kings chapter 2. He winnowed the wicked, all of the wicked members of David's court. From Proverbs chapter 25 we read, Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne shall be established in righteousness. This is also relevant to what the preacher describes concerning the wicked here, and what Solomon had actually done in 1 Kings chapter 2. At the beginning of this chapter the preacher had said, A man's wisdom makes his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. Then Solomon wrote in that same chapter of Proverbs, the verses which follow, Put not forth thyself in the presence of the king, and stand not in the place of great men. For it is better, for better it is, that it be said unto thee, Come up hither, than thou shouldest be put lower in the presence of the prince whom thine eyes have seen. We shall see, I'm sorry, we do see the same concept related by Christ in the Gospel, that those who humble themselves shall be exalted. Now the preacher, continuing, warns, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. We have already cited 1 Kings chapter 2, where we saw that many of the men who had wronged King David, during the time of his rule, did not suffer any apparent worldly punishment for their deeds until long after they were committed, when Solomon himself chose to avenge his father. So once again we can see that the preacher is writing from direct experience, and continuing he elaborates, Though a sinner do evil a hundred times, and his days be prolonged, Yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. And the New American Standard Bible has the last clause to read, who fear him openly, who fear God openly, in practice and not in word. (coughs) Here the preacher attests that when such wicked men are not punished, they are encouraged to commit even more wickedness. When sinners get away with their sins, they justify themselves and continue committing more and more of the same. This is our situation among our judges and rulers today. Within the last century, first, sodomy ceased to be punished as a crime. And soon after that, the sodomites themselves became a protected class. Now sodomy is being promoted to children and the children are being literally torn from the hands of their protesting parents by the courts. 
those who advocate sodomy are even seen as being more moral than Christians. This is one readily apparent example of the evils which the preacher is warning about, which are now manifest in our seats of government today. We have legislators and judges who have been spreading evil in their seats of power for 40 or 50 years, and they never seem to die. They never seem to go away. And in verse 13, But it shall not be well with the wicked. We have some encouragement. Neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow because he feareth not before God. And when you look at these clowns in our courts and legislatures, they certainly do not fear God. No fear whatsoever. They're proud of their perversions. The wicked seem to rule forever, but in the end their wickedness will not prevent them from death. Death will be well for the righteous, but not for the wicked. Death will not be well, as they shall also be judged by God. But where the preacher continues, he is referring to the apparent injustice of this transient life. And he says, There is a vanity which is done upon the earth, that there be just men, unto whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men, to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. Speaking of the wicked among his own people, the children of Israel, the prophet Jeremiah inquired of Yahweh with apparent exasperation. And he said in Jeremiah chapter 12, Righteous art thou, O Yahweh, when I plead with thee, let me talk with thee of thy judgments. In other words, Jeremiah is asking, what's going on here? Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? In other words, for what reason does the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Thou hast planted them. Yeah, they have taken root. They grow. Yeah, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins. As Christ said, you worship me with your mouth and with your lips and your heart is far from me. But thou, O Yahweh, knowest me. Thou hast seen me and tried mine heart toward thee. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long shall the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither, for the wickedness of them that dwell therein. The beasts are consumed, and the birds, because they said, He shall not see our last end. The wicked were getting away with being wicked in Jeremiah's day also. But there is an assurance that for the righteous, the end will result in righteousness. In the 37th Psalm, Commit thy way unto Yahweh, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. 
Rest in Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospers in his way. Fret not thyself because of those wicked people who seem to prosper. Because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon Yahweh, they shall inherit the earth. And the preacher continues. Then I commended mirth, because a man has no better thing under the sun than to eat, and to drink, and to be merry. For that shall abide with him of his labor the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. Where the preacher seems to contradict himself, it is evident that once again he is expounding upon this subject so that he can introduce a new concept into his teaching. He had already said in chapter 7 that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. But it seems that all worldly things being vanity. If all things were equal, then mirth is an attractive choice. The preacher will elaborate upon this in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. There it becomes apparent that he is speaking only in respect of the righteous, where he says in verse 7, Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart. For God now accepts thy works. If God accepts one's works, then ostensibly one has good works for God to accept. And the admonition to eat thy bread with joy and drink thy wine with a merry heart simply reflects a consignment of one's fate to God. Give us this day our daily bread. Something that Christ tells us we should pray for. I'm sure if he wanted to make a longer prayer, he just said, give us this day our daily bread and a glass of wine, or three, at least two, I'm sorry. For now he continues, and he says, in verse 16, When I applied mine heart to know wisdom, and to see the business that is done upon the earth, for also there is that neither day nor night seeth sleep with his eyes, that I beheld all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, because though a man labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yet further, though a wise man think to know it, yet shall he not be able to find it. The preacher had said in verse 9, that he had applied my heart unto every work that is done under the sun. And here he admits his failure that he cannot possibly discover all of the work that is done under the sun. In chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, he had said that I have seen the travail which God has given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God makes from the beginning to the end. Then in that same place he spoke concerning the works of men, and he said, I know that there is no good in them but for man to rejoice and to do good in his life, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy all the good of his labor. It is the gift of God. So here once again we see that he is, that he is elaborating on a topic 
which he has already discussed, and his repetition will allow him to introduce another aspect of that topic. That we shall see as we progress into chapter 9 of this work. For now, for chapter 8, for wisdom and the power of authority, we see that Paul, Paul of Tarsus, in Romans chapter 13, where he told us that we should all submit to a higher authority, he told us that rulers are not a terror to good works. So we expect that authority, even though it was a beast empire, to have a degree of righteousness. We saw the apostles proclaim to the Pharisees that they ought to obey God rather than man. We saw Daniel submit himself to the Babylonians so long as they were righteous. And when they tried to cause him to transgress against God, Daniel would not stand for it. We have been oppressed by an unrighteous government, by a beast government. But now it's getting to the point where the government is forcing us to transgress against our God. And we're doomed. We're doomed because Americans... Judeo-Christian denominations accepted it when sodomites were no longer punished and then they accepted it when sodomites became acceptable and then they accepted it when sodomites became a protected class and they joined in protecting sodomites. Now they're accepting it when children are turned into sodomites purposely And it's being enforced by the courts. And they're being torn from the hands of their parents. And they're accepting it. Most Americans are going to be doomed along with these unrighteous rulers. These wicked bastards are not going to get away with this forever. It's time that we started saying... It's time that we drew the line. It's time that we started saying that we ought to obey God rather than men. That judge in Ohio should be taken out and shot. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.